Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Peter Waller in the UK about his photographic book, Lost Hong Kong, a superb collection of photos that mark buildings and sites of the city that have largely long since disappeared. So we'll be hearing a bit more about that later in the programme. But first, you'll all be aware, of course, that Britain's Prince Philip, married to Queen Elizabeth II, died this month at the age of 99. He visited Hong Kong on several occasions, the first being as a naval officer at the end of the Second World War. His ship came in a few weeks after Britain's Admiral Harcourt had arrived in August 1945, at the time of the Japanese military surrender. Prince Philip reportedly commented at the time that it was a pleasure to be in Hong Kong for some celebrations here to mark the end of the war. He would later come to Hong Kong in 1959 and then again with the Queen in the 1980s. The first piece of sound you're going to hear is from Pathé News and accompanies a film that you can see on YouTube marking the Prince's arrival in Hong Kong where he's greeted by the then Hong Kong Governor Sir Robert Black at Blake's Pier. So let's have a listen to that. This is from Prince Philip's tour on the Royal Yacht Britannia in 1959. Victoria, capital of Hong Kong, was in festive mood. This was the long-awaited day when all, the very young included, saw Britannia at anchor in the harbour. The Governor, Sir Robert Black, was at Queen's Pier to welcome the Duke of Edinburgh. Fourteen years ago, as Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten, His Royal Highness came to Hong Kong in the wake of the Japanese occupation. Now he inspected the Guard of Honour of the Three Services as Consort of the Sovereign. That ceremony over, it was the turn of the people to cheer him. Chinese make up the big majority of the population of Hong Kong Island. Of late years, to share in the freedom and prosperity of British rule, Refugees from Red China have swarmed into the colony, and close on a million people now live on the island itself. The combination of a wonderful natural harbour and freedom from customs duties makes the port of Hong Kong one of the busiest in the world. But understandably on this day, commerce took a back seat. Hong Kong was a desolate island when it became British in 1841. Now, happy and thriving, it has been able to absorb the refugees. On the night of the Duke's arrival, its gaiety was in evidence more than ever. Next day at Government House, there was a garden party where, in a friendly and informal atmosphere, hundreds of prominent people met the Duke. His Royal Highness spoke to most of them. In many ways, the scene was typical of many that have already taken place on Prince Philip's world tour. There'll be many more before he returns to England at the end of April. It has become a commonplace to talk of royal ambassadors. But here at Hong Kong was evidence that by his gift of making friends of the people he meets everywhere, the Duke is an ambassador indeed. So a few bits of colour there from Prince Philip's visit to Hong Kong. Then I also found, among RTHK's reel-to-reels, some sound from veteran Radio Hong Kong journalist Ted Thomas, where he's out on another Royal Navy ship, presumably stationed at Hong Kong, 
accompanying the flotilla seeing Prince Philip off on the Royal Yacht Britannia. This isn't the full account, but is 15 minutes of it, and I do admire Ted's ability to, to provide descriptions, and I rather enjoyed it when I listened, so I hope you do too. There's quite a bit of geography of Hong Kong in there, and also Ted Thomas, as I say, has this real professional way of uh, ensuring that he conjures up the colour that we, the listener, are left to imagine as he describes it to us. There's ship horns and cheering crowds, and I think it also shows a deference for the royal family uh, that is an entirely different era, and that was 70 years ago. It's also a time, of course, when Hong Kong is a British colony and all that that entails. And a visit from Philip, with all that pageantry and tradition, would have reinforced that message. So this is Ted Thomas for Radio Hong Kong, as Prince Philip sails off to his next destination after a visit to Hong Kong in 1959. And here, off Tarthong Point, off Cape Carson, in fact, in the eastern approaches of the harbour limits. And aboard HMS Darsham, with only the other three ships of the escort and the Royal Yacht Britannia in company, except for perhaps four or five well-known craft which are cruising around us, I can see the Jardine's boat, Jardolinka, just to port of us here, with a crowd of people, I'm sure must be familiar, waving towards the Royal Yacht, and over to starboard, the Lady Barbara, the Yawl Lady Barbara. One might expect, as we of the flotilla begin to prepare to peel off and return to harbour, some sort of anti for the slower boats, the flag-bedecked pleasure craft, the crowded commercial boats, and even the gaily decorated sampans have left already. But no, this is the climax. This is where Britannia takes her final leave of Hong Kong, for still the shores of Hong Kong are not more than about a quarter or perhaps a half a mile away. The roaring of the firecrackers is stilled, and the screaming parents have bleated their last farewell, unless, of course, those ships which we now see waiting way up off the nine pins, between the nine pins and Waglan, are to their clamor to the noise we've already heard. For us, Later on tonight, of course, they'll be home. Our families and friends and the things we're used to doing, cinema, radio, books, walks, mostly familiar and in that set pattern that's come to be accepted as comfortable. For Prince Philip, there stretches ahead over a week of sea time before he dons his glittering uniform or impeccable morning coat to resume what will be, after all, another series of public engagements. The warmth with which he greeted us all, and the enjoying goodwill which he engendered amongst the people of Hong Kong. And of course, the occasion which his visit, this visit of both his Royal Highness and the Royal Yacht Britannia, and the crew of the Royal Yacht Britannia, have enabled us to enjoy. As we came up the harbour, we saw continuous and continuing error of the affection of the people of Hong Kong. Right from a tiny motorboat, the home which sounds almost like a squeak is probably the last audible noise we'll hear, the last audible farewell we'll hear from Hong Kong as the ships begin to turn out, begin to spray out like the leaves of a shamrock before escorting flotilla boats and take their own farewell. We're peeling off well over to starboard now and out of the way and then the boats of the flotilla will cut in and the crews will give their last farewell, their last cheer, three cheers for His Royal Highness, Prince Philip, 
before we really do give our last goodbye to both the yacht and His Royal Highness. The orders you just heard, manship of the crew who come tumbling up the ladder now, ready to fall in in their position in single file on the upper decks and prepare themselves for the final cheer. Just a few minutes ago, we came through Limoon Pass and, of course, a different Limoon Pass, ablaze with firecrackers and adorned with flags, people perched on almost every horizontal surface, adding their waves and shouts to those which we'd already heard at Queen's Pier and all the way along Gloucester Road on the seashore as the people crowded by to enjoy themselves and enjoy for themselves a last glance, a last look at the Royal Yacht. And when I say a last, I sincerely hope this is not true. I sincerely hope that in the future and in the not too distant future we'll see some more of the Royal Yacht and of course some more of the Royal Family. Now the junks, the civil craft beginning to fall off as we and the escort turn in towards the Royal Yacht now cutting in at what looks like an alarmingly dangerous angle they're going to cross, I think, the whole of the crew lining the rail with their hands on the guardrail, the upper rail of the guardrail, beginning to cross across the stern now. We're coming across. You can, you can hear the radio telephone conversations. We now see Wagner. When? At the arrival of His Royal Highness, we saw nothing. We all worried and fretted because we could see nothing whatsoever. We were shrouded in mist. And then at the last minute, that beautiful lifting of the weather. And then the blaze of sunshine with which we entered Hong Kong. I myself aboard this ship, filled all stranded at Wagland, unable to see a thing. And then suddenly that godsend gift of clear light, good visibility, and there in all its magnificence and glory, the Royal Yacht itself. And since that time, it's been good weather for almost every occasion. Every occasion has given people the opportunity to get out there and see Prince Philip, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, see him at close quarters. An attractive personality he really is. So far, it's been all usual television, radio broadcast, nothing of the person himself, but I'm sure that not one person who's seen him so far has been able to do so without his heart going out to him and appreciating what a magnificent job is being done. And now, with a call on the pipe, the whole of the flotilla begins to gather speed to even more than the 12 knots. The crew waiting expectantly at the guardrail. One boat getting dangerously close to the line of the flotilla here. And on the frigate just astern of us, not quite the same frenzied preparation that we're seeing here. They're all in a perfect line ahead here, the ships of the Hong Kong flotilla, the boats, the in-port shore minesweepers, which are a familiar sight to anyone who lives near the harbour or overlooks the harbour, steaming in and out on their patrols, on their practice minesweepings and manoeuvrings. And now, for the first time, being seen and recognised, and I'm sure appreciated by the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. Down comes the white ensign of Britannia as she replies in salute to a salute from the tiniest of craft over on our starboard side there. And it is a heartwarming thing to think that even as important and as glorious a ship as Britannia can take time out to reply to the salute of what is in effect a little motorboat over on our right there. Its ensign staff can't be more than five or perhaps six feet long at its tallest. And when it dips its ensign, 
This red ensign in friendly salute, it only comes down about perhaps 10 inches or a foot. But even to that, the crew of the Royal Yacht, jumping about in a commendable manner, get down their own white ensign and snap it up again and afford recognition, at least, to all the boats which have taken the trouble to come out here and bid a last farewell. And the scene here is reminiscent of the sort of scene we see in any of the old Chinese prints. There's a surface mist on the sea. And looking across towards Wagland and towards the Nine Pins and towards the Potoi group of islands there, it seems as if they're suspended in midair, about perhaps two or three hundred feet above the surface of the water, because the whole of the bottom surface, the whole of the shoreline, is blotted out or smudged out by this, if not thick, then certainly fairly thick, surface mist. We're heading now directly towards Wagland with the flotilla at what must be almost full speed, in fact I'm sure it's full speed, keeping impeccable formation and direct line ahead. In fact, as I look forward through our own mast and through the other three masts of the three ships ahead of us, they form a perfectly straight line, one which a ruler could be placed alongside and not show any appreciable difference either to the left or right. The crowd on the Royal Yacht, the hands which were fallen in to leave the harbour now, have begun to disperse, begin to get around, get on with their jobs, and the frigate just astern of us is beginning to close up just a little, and any minute now we'll be saying our last farewell to the Duke of Edinburgh. Britannia begins to turn. Mike Corpin, one three zero. Time one seven zero four. One three or well, this is it. The Royal Yacht Britannia now moves onto a new course. One three zero turns, and the whole of the flotilla begins to move up to come alongside. Previously, we've been strung out in a line on the port quarter, and now Britannia will reduce speed, and the flotilla will move past and then peel off to the left and return to the harbor of Hong Kong. Britannia slows down. The leading ship is now alongside already. I can see the crew of the leading ship standing by to cheer, and the second ship. Rather long swell out here, not uncomfortable. Quite a comfortable uh, sleep-inducing moment, almost. And Wagland beginning to disappear again in the haze already. It's very uncertain weather conditions that we've seen so far. The orders you hear over the radio telephone are alterations to course and speed given by the Hong Kong flotilla leader up ahead of us there, the first boat, who is practically invisible. And now all the boats reduce the revolutions. You could probably hear the change in note in the engines, a quieter, more even note. And we can just see His Royal Highness on the royal deck. And that, I think, will be the last instruction given by our senior officer before we leave Britannia finally and return to Hong Kong. The crowd thickens now. 
We're beginning to move up. Faster and faster, we can feel the engine revolutions build up. The deck begins to throb beneath our feet as we speed up for the final rundown past Britannia and the final look which His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, will get of, if not Hong Kong, then of the people of Hong Kong because his only sight of the colony now will be a brief glimpse through the mist of Wagland Island and possibly just the slightest tip of the nine-pin group as he passes between these two promontories. And not only His Royal Highness up on the sand deck now, quite a crowd of the staff and retainers have gathered, and it's a strange sight to see that amongst all the pomp and circumstance of the entering and leaving harbour of a Royal Navy ship, or in this case, the Royal Yacht, it's not unusual to see the sight of the chef or the cook up there with his sleeves rolled up and the collar of his shirt open and his hair all over his face, showing that, after all, this, as well as being a very smart and beautiful-looking ship, is also a very democratic one. And they're all gathering now in the Royal Yacht to take the last look at the Hong Kong flotilla, the last sight of Hong Kong for some time, as we move up and begin to pass down the port side, racing past, and the tremendous turbulence of water being set up by the wake of the boats here as their speed increases and increases faster and faster, the white wake creaming out from the bow, smashing into side of Britannia as we spin past, and aft, only two hands standing by the ensign waiting to dip it, for the last goodbye to any Hong Kong merchant ships that may be around. We're roaring past Britannia now. Our bow comes in line with the stern. The first, second and third ship have already cheered. And now our ship, Dosham, prepares for cheering. We come alongside the bridge. The caps are taken off. And you'll hardly hear it in this noise, I'm sure, but here it is. There with the voices of Dasham, ringing out the tiny crew of less than a dozen men, their caps held aloft, swinging them round as they shout, hooray, three hurrahs for the Duke of Edinburgh and the Royal Yacht Britannia from what is in fact a memorable village. We will return you to the studios. That final commentary on the departure of the Royal Yacht Britannia came from Ted Thomas on board HMS Dasham. This is Radio Hong Kong. We play now part of the Tchaikovsky fantasy. Ted Thomas there for Radio Hong Kong. So that's a few memories of Prince Philip, who died this month at the age of 99. And for the final segment of this week's Hong Kong Heritage, I have a chat to Peter Waller, who's based in the UK. Peter has produced a couple of books in Hong Kong with publishers Blacksmith Books. The first is The Tramways of Hong Kong, A History in Pictures, a lovely book of photos of trams going right back to the early 1900s and then right forward to the present day. His second book is called Lost Hong Kong and looks at buildings and views that have long since changed in Hong Kong. The photographs for both books come from collections of photographs that are either well-recognised, like the Welcome Collection, or are the photos of people who may have lived in Hong Kong or visited the city. A fascination with the history of Hong Kong, having, having visited it on two occasions in the early 1990s, and an awareness that so much of the, particularly the architectural heritage of the 
sort of early colonial era had had been swept away in the in the 60s and 70s. So many fascinating buildings that uh, look really interesting and, and really a shame that they disappeared. Indeed. I mean, you've put this uh, collection together and it goes right back into uh, the late 19th century or even before that. Um, and uh, in fact, yes, we've got a John Thompson I'm just staring at that's uh, from 1869. So you've got some quite early photography there. Oh, could you tell me about the front cover? It's an absolutely fascinating photograph taken in about 1860. And it records the naval presence of both Britain and France at a, at a particularly interesting time in the development of the sort of the colonial era in the Far East. And it shows part of the cathedral St John's and, and, and the sort of central government offices at the time. Uh, obviously, St John's is still there, but the area around it has been completely redeveloped. And, of course, the harbour area that's visible in the background has been largely reclaimed as well. Oh, yes. I mean, this is a completely different harbour front to one... I mean... Um you know, uh, St John's would be way back now. and uh, But it's interesting because St John's here, of course, I mean, it's only been uh, a British colony here for 19 years and um, St John's is towering above any other building. And uh, also you can see very much down at the harbour front, it's very undeveloped and, and, you know, almost seems to be have aspects of a building site about it. But as you say, you've got the... Uh, quite grand. Um, you've got the British and French fleets out there in the harbour in this uh, early photo that's uh, been taken in around uh, 1860. Uh, when you were collating all of these photos, as you say, you go right back to the, you know, almost the mid-19th century. You show a variety in terms of it's got transport, it's got uh, industry, um, you've got a, a sugar refinery in there, and then, of course, many of Hong Kong's grand buildings. So how did you make your choices? I wanted to reflect as, as much as possible as great a variety of activities within Hong Kong itself. Uh, and obviously, Hong Kong Island there were industrial developments there, like the sugar refineries and so on. Obviously, as the wealth of the colony developed, so the grand houses were built on Victoria Peak and so on, and the drawing in of, of disparate populations. You know, Hong Kong, right from the start of being a, a colony, drew in people from a, a wide range of, of areas and locations. It wasn't simply the British, there were people from India and, and so on. And it, it became a sort of a complete cultural melting pot, uh, absolutely fascinating sociological development, if you like. Now, your statement on the front, the actual title of the book, Lost Hong Kong, A History in Pictures, of course, every building that we're looking at here is gone. Fascinating also to see other things that are around these buildings. I and mean, we've got the very grandiose City Hall that was opened on the 3rd of September 1869 by Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh. And uh, this uh, image is viewed across the Murray Parade Ground. And behind it, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, a very uh, impressive building, lots of balustrades, columns. It's, it's uh, lovely to look at. And uh, the foundation stone was laid on the 23rd of February, 1867, by the then Governor Sir Richard MacDonald. This is an original photograph taken by William Pryor Floyd in his visit uh, in 1873. But when you look behind the building, you've got this very barren hillside, which, of course, Absolutely. you know, uh, there were no trees. Yes, but also you, you, you can see behind it, on the, on the extreme right of the photograph, the sort of the gradual encroachment of buildings up the hillside. And the city hall itself was, was swept away before World War II. And the site is now occupied partly by the, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank headquarters.
even a building as prestigious as the City Hall disappeared in the wake of commercial redevelopment. These photographs by William Pryor Floyd, also you have uh, a number from John Thompson, among others, uh, they all come under the Welcome Collection. Yes, the Welcome Collection is, is a charity based in London, which is a, is a medical charity, in fact. It, it's funded a, a lot of medical research over the years, and they have acquired various photographic collections from people who, who were linked into either the, the evolution of the British Empire or, or medicine. Absolutely fascinating collection, going back to, you know, to, to the dawn of medical research, almost. And they have a museum and library based in London. Part of the Welcome Connection, you've got the Club Germania building in Wyndham Street. That was uh, from the German community. Hong Kong, really from the start acted as a sort of anthropot for traders from a whole variety of nations. There were French missionaries, for example, of, say, there was the German community. These all, all these groups brought, to, if you like, their own, their own cultural identities to Hong Kong and helped Hong Kong to evolve as, as, a, as a sort of the multicultural place that it became. Also, I love with these uh, early black and white just the, the amount of detail that you can see in them. What sort of early photography is it? Well, it would have been glass plate in those days. Uh, uh, and obviously, that's why, uh, if you look at the, some of the individuals, some of the street scenes, the, the figures are blurred because obviously the exposure time with these glass plate negatives is, 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 it can be up to minutes. People would, would wander across in front of the shutter. But then you have to imagine these intrepid travellers wandering around with these large bulky cameras, carrying around these glass plates to record the scenes, and then having to store them before they could get them developed sort of thing. The sheer intrepidness of it all is, is just absolutely amazing. I would have to be very thankful that there were people that prepared to, to go out and do this. Yeah, a lot of effort. A lot of your uh, photos are based on buildings, um, you know, some uh, you can just see it from the early days, you know, it's uh, the, just the building itself in a, in a sort of fairly barren landscape. You then move into streetscapes, also we've got a group of sailors from HMS Terrible. Uh, what's the significance of that? It's just a reflection of, of how important Hong Kong was as, as, as a naval station for the Royal Navy from the 1840s onwards. It was sort of acquired almost by accident in 1841, the Hong Kong Island. And, and it was a sort of primarily a naval station in the naval dockyard. And it was, it was the development of the trade thereafter that brought the colonies into sort of the, the life that it later led. It's uh, interesting to see here, you know, you got, I'm looking at about 100 men here, and it's in a, a photograph... Um, that's taken at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, you've, you've got the front guys all sort of lying on the deck and then the ones behind kneeling. Then, um, so they've actually arranged it uh, very well. And um, I'm just having a quick look through the text here and it's actually talking about the, um, you know, the, the threat at the time or the perceived threat is from the Russian Navy's long-range armoured cruiser Rurik. So, of course, this is at a time when, uh, you know, people, you know, the British didn't really get on with the Russians. <laughs> Little changes. Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, the most fascinating photograph is one that, I mean, some of, some of the others, I won't necessarily have seen that particular depiction, but I've seen some of these buildings before, of course. And uh, you've got one that uh, is, uh, you've got rocks in the forefront, and then you've got a, a sugar refinery and distillery that were demolished in 1928. So this obviously picture has been taken far earlier. Can you tell me about that image? You've got lots of tall chimneys. Sugar refinery refining required effectively the, the sugar cane to be boiled you then dry out the sediment uh, which became the sugar and create things like molasses but obviously part of the major uh, industrial process 
and developed that location really from the sort of third quarter of the 19th century onwards. So it was only there for sort of a relatively short period of time. My thanks to Peter Waller there, talking about his superb photo book, Lost Hong Kong, A History in Pictures, which is published by Blacksmith Books. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.